Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody here this morning. And I also want to extend a good morning. Those of you who may be watching at home this morning, we're doing our first uh, live cast today, and I'm thankful that we can offer that to people who can't be here. There were a number of people that were not able to be here this morning. They're able to watch at home. So we're glad you're here as well. Um, Something happened yesterday in the town of Sheridan that was a first. It had not happened here before. Uh, On Main Street, there was a a gay pride march. It was a parade. And I remember the first time I heard about this was on Facebook. I was on uh, the the city of Sheridan homepage, and there was this announcement for this parade that was going to be happening. And there were a number of comments, and I I was looking at them and reading them very carefully. I wanted to understand what the reaction to this was going to be among people who were willing to post it anyway. And as I expected, they were very mixed. There were some people who were absolutely uh, infuriated by this march. And then there were others who wanted to show that they were 100% supportive of what was going on. And then there were some people who were kind of falling into this, I guess you'd call it a a middle ground, a, a less emotional kind of response. Eventually, they turned off the comments, which I thought was a good thing. Um, I don't know that Facebook is the, the best place to, to get into a debate. But what was interesting to me among these responses is, is the feelings that, that was behind those responses. And, I, and I'm sure if I were to go around, there'd be a number of different feelings that you all had toward this as well. I'm sure that many of you thought this was something that you would never see in your lifetime that this kind of thing was happening, and it was happening right here on the streets in Sheridan. And what we see are people who are giving in to an ungodly desire, and and that's upsetting. And, And maybe what's really upsetting to you is this seemingly growing influence of the LGBTQ movement in America. But what I want to ask is what is really the root problem that is going on here? Is the root problem that people are giving in to ungodly desires? Or is it that we are simply seeing played out in front of our eyes a generation who does not know God? Are we seeing the consequences of subsequent generations who have gone on without God And now we are, before our eyes, watching it happen right here in the streets of Sheridan. I would submit to you that that is what we're seeing. We're seeing what happens when people live as though they are not disciples of Jesus Christ. And I say as though they are not disciples because, frankly, I don't know in that crowd if there were believers or not. I don't know. I can't see people's hearts. But this does does lead me to what I'd like to talk to you about this morning What happens when a generation forgets God, and how do we keep it from happening? What happens when a generation lives as though God does not exist, and what could we expect to see? And then what role can we play in keeping that from happening? And the passage I'd like to talk to you about this morning comes from Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 17 initially, we'll be sort of all over that chapter today and and part of chapter 3. But if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Judges chapter 2, 11 through 17. 
And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. When they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. You may be seated. This morning we're continuing our series in the book of Judges, and one of the repeated themes in the book of Judges is what happens when there is no king. You see, there was no king in Israel, and people were doing what was right in their own eyes. So in a sense, you could say, welcome to Israel. There's no sheriff in town. No one's minding the store, and this is what we see happening in Israel. People going after their own ways, people going after these other gods, everybody doing what was right in their own eyes. You see, God had made an agreement with the people of Israel. And you saw way back, we looked last week in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, this Abrahamic covenant where God went to Abraham and he made these promises to Abraham. And then later he'd make another covenant that said, you've got a deal, though, to keep up. If you keep me as your God, if you don't go chasing after other gods, then no one will stand before you. But if you betray me, I'm going to deliver you into the hands of the people who are oppressing you. Unfortunately, that's what we see happening again and again in the book of Judges. This agreement, this covenant not being kept up by Israel. Last week, we took this first look at the sin of the Israelites. We immediately see them abandoning what they had learned, and they start going after other gods. And we looked at that failure, and we talked about, well, how do you cope with failure? And fortunately, we see the Israelites become repentant. They acknowledged they'd made mistakes, they repented, and they, they turned away, and they made a sacrifice to the Lord. Unfortunately, that repentance didn't last too long. And you saw it there uh, in the chapter that we just went through. They came up with excuses. They, they talked about being afraid of the people that had the iron-rimmed wheeled chariots. And that wasn't going to stand with God. So then by going through this chapter, by looking at the failures, the failures of the Israelites to do what God had commanded them to do, uh, we're learning about being more Christ-like. And this morning we're going to continue on. And we're going to talk about, one, the danger of forgetting God. What happens when the people of Israel forget God. Then secondly, the need to follow God. We do, by the grace of God, have a deliverer. Again and again and again and again in the book of Judges. And then finally, we'll talk about how can we know God? How can we know God? And then how can we pass that faith to the next generation so we don't repeat the same mistakes that we see happening right here in the book of Judges? So we'll talk about these, these three things 
And before we get back to the book of Judges, I want to do a little more of the history that we get in the book of Genesis uh, concerning the land that was promised to the offspring of Abraham. I want to briefly look at Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16, because we got some information, and it's really pertinent to what we're, we're talking about and seeing this morning. And starting there in verse 13, it says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And that's a reference to Egypt and the time that the Israelites spent in Egypt for that 400 years. And it says, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And we, we see that happening. We see the Israelites um, coming out of Egypt. God inflicts plagues upon them. He, he takes the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, and they come out with great possessions. Actually, that's, that's detailed. Um, we, we see that the Israelites lead with possessions from the Egyptians. And then it goes on. As for you, speaking to Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Well, that's nice to know. Abraham, all right. You'll get to live a long time. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, this last verse is very interesting because what God is saying is, I'm giving these Amorites some time. They are not yet as bad as they are going to be. You know, it's, it's difficult. As a matter of fact, in seminary, I wrote a paper on this this event called the Canaanite Genocide. These Israelites that are just going in there and, and seemingly indiscriminately killing everybody they come into under the command of God, or they should be. But look at this verse. God already recognizes that these Amorites are sinning, and he's giving them 400 years. They'll come back in the fourth generation when, as he says it, when the iniquity, when the sins of these Amorites reach, reaches its fullness or when it becomes complete. And the Israelites are going to be the instrument of God's judgment. Not only are they going to go in and take this incredible fertile land for themselves, but they will also punish these Amorites. They will be the tip of God's spear. So I wanted to provide you with that background. He's patiently waiting for these Amorites to reach the fullness of their sin. And that brings us uh, to Judges chapter 2. And the first thing we're going to see is the danger of forgetting God, this, this horrible danger of forgetting God. And let's look, take a look at this generation that forgot God. So going back to Judges chapter 2, we pick it up at verse 6. And verse 6, notice what's happening here. This is an important sort of a... Uh, interpretational point. It says, when Joshua dismissed the people. Now, we're going back in time. Uh, we've been talking about current events happening in Judges, and then boom, we get to verse 6, and we go back in time. It's kind of like, you know how like on TV shows when there's like a conversation between two people, and, and then one of them starts going, you know, it just seems like yesterday, and then there's this, sort of this, the screen goes fuzzy and wonky, and you have this flashback scene. Well, that's what's happening here in the verse of 6, starting verse 6. You've got this, this flashback scene where you go back in time uh, to, to, to Joshua. So we're talking about Joshua here. It says, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel 
went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years old. Again, a, a good long life. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnath Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So we've got that flashback. Here's what it looked like with Joshua. People were serving the Lord. People had seen the work of the Lord. But then we've got this other generation that comes up who did not know the Lord. There's a couple of things I want to point out to you. And, and, and look carefully at verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. This generation had this firsthand knowledge and saw what God had done. But then we get to verse 10. And notice that phrase, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. There's a shift. There's a change. This next generation was not like the previous generation. Now, it's interesting that, that no real cause is stated here. It's like, well, well, why didn't they? Well, it's not stated. We don't know exactly why. But that single phrase, that, that's probably the most important fact that we can learn about this next generation, is they didn't know the Lord. Now, that word know is different in the way that you and I would use it. When we say that, do you know so-and-so, we're just kind of asking, well, have you had any kind of brush or acquaintance with somebody? That's different than the Hebrew understanding of this word know. This would be a word that would describe a husband and a wife in a marriage relationship. This describes a covenantal knowing of God. People knew God. They knew the kind of arrangement they had with God. They knew the, the loyalty they needed to have for God. And all that is abandoned in this phrase, they did not know God. So then what happens when God is unknown? We see these, these wretched results that come up, and they're, they're boiled down very well in verse 14. It says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. It's as though God is no longer there with them. Israel was unfaithful to their God. And this is the biggest fail. What they were unable to do was to keep alive the memory of what it was God had done for them. They didn't pass it along. They didn't keep it alive within the body. Evidently, it wasn't even talked about what it was that God had done. And you think, how, how could that have happened? It's almost like the, the miraculous acts they saw. I mean, I mean, the things that happened in Egypt, God leading them through the desert, this pillar of fire. Yeah. Yeah, it was forgotten about. Those acts of God were forgotten about. And because they forgot an entire generation is going to be lost. They're going to lose out on God's blessings. 
You see, forgetting about God was just as tragic then as it is tragic today. Not much has changed. Let me ask you something. When is it easiest to forget about God? Um, Is it when times are really difficult? Or is it when times are really, really easy? Uh, You know, in my own life, when I look back at the times where there was very little prayer happening, where there was very little, uh, frankly, church attendance was probably a lot more loose, it's when things were fairly easy. It's when nothing was really challenging happening to me in life. It's when I wasn't taking risks for God. Those are the times when I tend to live as though I have forgotten about God. It's not in the hard times. Because I tell you what, if I've got a sleepless night, man, God, would you help me get to sleep? If I'm in pain, Lord, would you please take this pain away? If I've got a loved one that's dying or ill or in the hospital, man, I'm on my knees. But see, it's in the easy times that I tend to have these periods forgetting God. Long periods of time may go by where I have very little intentional prayer going on or feel very little need of him in my life. There's a danger in that because, you see, when we live that way, we are missing out on blessings. We are missing out on the opportunities to share Christ with someone. We are missing out on the opportunity to use the gifts that God has given us for the edification of the body. See, that's why God gives gifts. So those gifts can be gifted to somebody else. So we can teach people, encourage people. Just about every gift, if you go through the New Testament, I want to say just about every, every gift that's given to the body cannot be practiced outside the context of community. How do you love somebody? How do you encourage somebody? How do you show mercy to somebody? You can't do it by yourself. See, those are the times we're living and acting as though we have forgotten God. And when we do that, we are missing out. These Israelites were meant to have all of the land. But because they were being disobedient, because they had forgotten God, they weren't getting any of it. As a matter of fact, they're going to have to live under the tyrannic rule of these Canaanites as a result of their lack of obedience because they are acting faithlessly. So it's when times are okay that we tend to not take risks or we neglect our own spiritual life and we miss out on opportunities. We miss out on blessings. So we see the Israelites had forgotten God, and as a result, they're literally lusting. I mean, I, you know, there's a word there in the, that I read when it was opening up. It said they, and it used this word, they whored after other gods. Other versions say they, they prostituted themselves after these gods. See, these, these Canaanite gods were being credited with the fertility of the land. You've got to imagine these Canaanites were living in incredibly, you know, this was the promised land they'd been inhabiting all this time. There were huge grape clusters, and there was honey. I mean, it was just, it was the place to be. And these, these guys, these Canaanites, thought it was their false gods, the Baals and the Asherahs that were providing them with these things, that they were making the land fertile. And the Israelites, what did they do? They forgot God, and they just sort of bought into it. You see, rarely when you forget God, you just leave that void. There's some other thing, person, and place idea that you're going to follow. And I want to talk about following God then now for a moment. Um, we talked about what it's like when he's forgotten, but what about when he's followed? And fortunately, uh, let me just for, first refer you back to the previous generation there in chapter 2, verse 7. 
It says that the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So you've got this generation following God. It doesn't say that they saw the work the Lord done, but this generation had remembered God. And then we get to this new guy we find in chapter 3, starting in verse 7, verses 7 through 11. And it says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishthaim, the king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishthaim eight years. Now, that name Cushan Rishthaim literally means the Cushan of double wickedness. Okay, that's the king that they're now serving. So God is punishing these Israelites by the hand of this guy. But then notice what happens starting at verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, if you remember who Caleb was, he was one of the two good spies that initially went into the land of Canaan and came back and said, you know what, there are giants there, but guess what? We can beat them. We can beat them. The other ten spies didn't have such a good attitude. They're like, let's get out of here. Great clusters, great, but let's not get squashed. But these are the guys that had faith. So Caleb, he's blessed even more because of his faith. He's mentioned again. It says, the spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishthaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishthaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. Now, what we see here is this pattern. It's going to happen again and again. Israel's going to do something evil in the sight of the Lord. God punishes them by handing them over to a guy like Cushan Rishthai. I had to practice this a lot, by the way. It doesn't just roll off the tongue very easy. Cushan Rishthaim. They give him over to a dude like this. Then God sends a deliverer when the people cry out, and he delivers them. This is a cycle that's going to happen again and again and again and again and again. But let's make some observations about this section we just read. Again, I mentioned Caleb. But beyond that, uh, very little is mentioned about this first judge, Othniel. We don't hear a whole lot about him. Nothing dramatic happens. No additional land is taken. He doesn't give any big, long, recorded speeches. But if you look very carefully, especially what it says in verse 9, notice it says, The people cried out, and the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel. See, the focus of this section is totally on God. Very little is really said about this judge. The focus is on God raising him up. It says the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He doesn't make any major errors. He simply comes onto the scene, and he obediently goes out to war. This is what he does, and God does the rest. And then what happens? It says the land rests for 40 years. They've got 40 years of peace after they cried out to God and followed this this man, Othniel. See, he's primarily about God. The success of Othniel could be 
attributed to the fact that he was primarily about God, much more than he was about himself. You see, that's a factor in following God. When we are truly following God, we will become less and God's going to become more. When we are truly following God, it is much less about us and a whole lot more about God. And that's what we see with this leader in Israel, this judge that God raised up. So we see this morning these consequences of a generation that does not know God. They've forgotten him. And we've also seen the blessings of following God. The land rested for 40 years. So then how do we, how do we embrace the latter, the following God, and avoid the former, forgetting God? I want to talk through that for a moment now. And the first step to do that, this idea of knowing God, is to know God personally. You've got to know God personally. Now, this is essential. See, God made himself known to us in the Old Testament. He created. He's with the people of Israel. And God is going to make himself known to us in the New Testament as well, in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a real danger, interestingly, for children who are raised in church and in pretty good homes. And I'm thinking that there's many of you who may fall in that category, that you were introduced to God at a young age. But the danger in knowing God young is that you can rely on the faith of your parents. In other words, at some point, every single person must personally and individually realize that they are a sinner. No matter what home you may have come out of, no matter how good you may may or not have been, you're not that great. See, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And you individually, personally, must put your trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ. You have to trust that what he did for you when he came to earth, fully God, fully man, took the sin of the world, put it on himself, and died on the cross, you have to trust in that saving act of Jesus to save you. Nothing else is going to do it. No church attendance, no good works is going to save you. Only what Christ has done for you. And you can't trust the faith of anybody else to get you there. It has to be personal. You have to do that. If you haven't done that this morning, you can do it right there where you're sitting. Right now, you can trust Christ as your Savior. You become a Christian by believing in Jesus and what he did for you. Right there where you're sitting, you can simply pray to God, Lord, I believe that I'm a sinner and I believe that you died on the cross to save me from my sins. That is knowing God personally. Jesus Christ is alive today. He was resurrected. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And it's by trusting in him that you're saved. You have to do that personally, individually. It has to be your faith. That's the only thing you bring to the table is the trust and the reception of the gift that has been given. So you've got to know God personally. Now, beyond that, uh, we continue getting to know God over the course of a lifetime. And the second part is to know God's acceptance. Know God's acceptance. If you've trusted in, in the Lord, if you've trusted in Christ, then he fully accepts you as you are. Sinner, we're all saved from our sin. Uh, 
there's a wonderful story uh, written by a guy named Larry Crabb. Uh, if you've never read a Larry Crabb good book, he's written some great, great stuff. But in one of his books, he tells a story about a young man, actually it was a friend of his, that grew up in a very angry home. There was a lot of angry sarcasm. If they did anything wrong, they'd be yelled and screamed at. So what his friend did when he was about 10 years old is he would try to eat dinner as quickly as he could to get away from the table. And after he ate dinner, he would sneak off to this house down the street, this, this old-fashioned house. And he if, 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 would just want to sort of take in the, the love and the peace within that home. As a matter of fact, when he would sneak up to that house, if they were eating dinner, he would crawl under the porch just to listen to that family laugh together. And Larry Crabb asked him one day, one day, he said, well, what would you have done if the dad of that house had come out and found you under the porch, he had invited you to come inside, and he invited you to sit at their table. And what would have happened if you would have spilled a glass of water and the dad would have just roared with laughter and said, get him a dry shirt, give him another glass of water, because we want him to sit here and enjoy this meal with us. See, that's the kind of acceptance we have with our Father God. He loves us. He accepts us right where we are, and he gives us a seat at the table. That's, that's the acceptance I'm talking about. That's God's acceptance. And, and part of knowing God is knowing him personally, and it's knowing this acceptance. Third is to know God's love, to know God's love. You know, if you've been blessed to have lived in a home where you had two parents who loved you dearly, who would have sacrificed anything for you, who met your every need, if you're married to someone right now who loves you way more than you love yourself, all of those things still fall infinitely short of the kind of love that God has for you. So if you didn't grow up in a home like that, if you don't have a spouse like that, guess what? God's love is still available to you. You know, oftentimes when a couple is, is married for a while, they may make a statement like, well, the honeymoon's over. Now we're in a different kind of marriage than we were during that honeymoon period, you know, when your brain's just sort of Twitter-pated, and they call it actually a juiced brain, when you're just kind of in love with someone at that point. But with God, the honeymoon period never ends. It keeps on going. I love this, this statement by John Piper. He talks about this kind of love that you can experience with God. And he said, uh, and add to this, that with God, the honeymoon never ends. He is infinite in power and wisdom and creativity and love. And so he has no trouble sustaining a honeymoon level of intensity. He can foresee all the future quirks of our personality, and he's decided he will keep what's good for us and change what isn't. He will always be as handsome as he ever was and will see to it that we get more and more beautiful forever. And he's infinitely creative to think of new things to do together so that there will be no boredom for the next trillion ages of millenniums. You see, that's the power of God's love. You may experience some infinitesimal fraction of that in the best of circumstances, but it's still going to fall way short of the kind of love that God has for us. And then finally, um, pass it on to the next generation. 
pass it on to the next generation. Show the next generation what it's like to spend a lifetime in a relationship with God and spare no story. Show them that they are worth spending time with. Tell them about how God has practically impacted you over the days of your life. This is what I love about First Baptist is we value an intergenerational church. One of the best strengths, I believe, is having all ages sitting together where the younger people can see the faith of the older people. And you all have been through it. I've heard some of your stories. I know the pain of life, what you've been through, and yet here you sit. You've not walked away from the faith. You've not walked away from God. That story is invaluable to the next generation. It's easy to be upset about what's happening out there on the main street of Sheridan. It's easy to throw up a nasty post on Facebook. But you know what? It's harder when you start stepping into the lives of these young people. And you understand what they're facing. You understand what they're up against. You understand the hurt and the pain that they're feeling. You know what it's like for them to go through a single day of junior high. I had a conversation with somebody this morning. It has not gotten any easier what kids are facing. And you can pass on your faith to the next generation. So putting this all together, receive God's blessings by knowing him and share it with the next generation. Receive God's blessings by knowing him and sharing it with the next generation. You know, sometimes you may think, well, this, this generation is it's just lost. But let me, let me tell you about another first that happened. Yesterday was not the only first that's happened in Sheridan because of two weeks ago, three weeks ago, a group of 14 of our young people went to the Blackfeet Nation to serve them, led by our fearless leader, Shane Rosty, with his hands up there in the background. And they went there, and they were leading VBS, they went around to the reservation with a van. They gathered up the kids. They would take them, and they had vacation Bible school with them where they heard the gospel, where they heard the Bible. Uh, they were leading them in crafts. In addition to that, they went around and just did a lot of cleanup work around the reservation. And the reason I'm showing this to you is so you can see, yes, there is a next generation that has not abandoned the Lord. And you know what? Over the rich 127-year history of First Baptist Church, that has been a tradition that we want to keep going. In a hundred years from now, if the Lord tarries and we're all still here, or whoever's here, we're probably not going to be here, I hope that somebody stands up and shows pictures like this so you can see that, yes, the next generation is serving God and living out the faith that has been passed on to them. Please pray with me. Lord we, Lord, we are prone to wander. I love the words of that hymn, God. We are prone to leave the God we love. And Lord, I pray that we would always follow you, that we would never be turned away by all the, the tempting things out there, that we would never try to prosecute a life apart from you. Lord, I pray especially when times are easy, that we would be diligent in prayer and gathering together and being a body that's, that would never even think of forgetting about or abandoning you. 
Lord, I pray that the rich tradition, the legacy this church has of passing on its faith to the next generation would go on, Lord, so long as you keep the church here on the earth, Lord, until you come back to take it home. I pray that that would be our heart and our passion. We ask it in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to leave you with these words uh, from a, a man by the last name of Bailey, who for a long time served as the chaplain for one of the queens of Scotland. And he said this, I thank thee, O Lord, that thou hast so set eternity within my heart that no earthly thing can ever satisfy me wholly. Thank you all so much for being here. You're dismissed. Have a great day.